Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Crimeland. My name's Julie J. And this week, as ever, I'm joined by the very lovely... Sophie Shanley. And this week, we're discussing the death of Marianne Fagan. Have you heard of this one, Sophie? I'd say you haven't. No, never, never. Very good. Fagan. Hmm, a bit Irish. Bit it is a bit Irish. It's a bit Irish, but they don't spell it the Irish way. They actually spell it P-H, oh, that's which is a, a bit sacrilegious. That's very weird. P-H-A-G-A-N. Yeah, so last week I did get the name wrong for 50% of the episode, but this <laughs> week it's definitely vegan. It's this is a really good one. It's a fascinating kind of a historical one. Now, I usually don't go for the historical ones, but this case is just so mad. I was like, oh no, this is a good week. I think Sophie's going to like it. I'm very excited. Have you had a nice week, Mrs? Yeah, I had a really nice week. It was quiet enough, but did some... Had loads of drinks on Friday and then it kept it wholesome enough. Did a swim, did a walk. Oh, are you a sea swimmer now? Is that who you are? Mm, well, I mean, I'm not like a happy pair brother, but I'm I'm <laughs> <laughs> dipping the toe in, so to speak. Uh, do you know what? We went, we went for a sea swim and I have to document it on Instagram because it's been so long since I've forced the pod into the togs. But it is, you know, not to sound like a happy pair twin, but it is pretty amazing, isn't it? Going for a swim in the sea. Yeah. Very cleansing and very, you've got this like smug afterglow for like the whole rest of the day, really. Oh, it's fab. And I do have to laugh because the amount of times in my life friends of mine have said, uh, do you want to go to Greystones at dawn and we can go swimming? And I'm like, no, like you can go swimming in Greystones anytime you want. <laughs> yeah. It's just because the twins are there. No, like they don't. I love them, but they don't own the sea, is no. what we're saying. Like you can no. go whenever. I would rather do many 
horrible things than swim with the happy pair. I'd feel so inadequate and I find them so annoying. I know they've built a lovely empire and I do eat their ready meals and they're delicious, but like, spare me, please. No, thank you. I think I see where you're coming from. You're like, I'll take the hummus, but I no, not the positivity. It's just too much. Leave the chat and like the way they like walk on their hands into like the late late and stuff not into it yeah there's a, there's a lot of that monkeying around <laughs> that's it dude. I hate all that kind of like happy clappy slapsticky shite like you're grown-ups you're both and you've, well you know I was delighted though I don't know what age, what age would they be would they be early 40s I'm going to say early 40s because they mention things like like raves and stuff. And I think people who talk about like okay. raves and like that, kind of, you know, they're, yeah, he, they'd be pushing 40 to, to have yeah. experienced a bit of acid house culture. I'm going to say. <laughs> they're about 40. Oh, I think, I think they'd have to be early 40s. Do you know, I, cause I think I've heard one of them reference super Quinn before. So I'm like, that's always kind of a telltale sign. Yeah. As to somebody's age when they're talking about super Quinn, the since defunct Irish I mean, supermarket for like, international listener they look a bit like they may have been on like an original 1990s club 1830 holiday back in oh, the day 100% okay. but I will say in the interest of journalistic balance um the one time I did a six o'clock show with them oh my god the amount of freebies it was great <gasps> I got a load no. of freebies yeah okay uh, they made vegan burgers, which even my father said, usually he doesn't watch the, if I'm on something like the Six Clock Show, he doesn't watch it. But he <laughs> did watch this one. And even he said the burgers look delicious. Got a lot of freebies. Now, I will say, they're very, you see, they're very warm, tactile people. So there's a lot of hugging. I did think they were going to shift the face off me at some stage. Or each but- other. Or, or each other. <laughs> but I walked away with about four free hummuses, which, as we know, I mean, that's the equivalent of like a hundred euro stash. Julie, there are five or each, if not more. Oh, listen, we were eating nothing but hummus for the whole week. Oh, Julie, I was like, this is not done. I'm actually a bit hard for the happy pair twins now after hearing that. Like, I'm like, oh, uh, well, I was honestly lovely. And if the, if the, if they, want to like me I will like them back via some free well, stuff <laughs> and you know what they are absolutely gorgeous as well aren't they yeah. Jesus they're fabulous looking men but uh, oh you back back anyway the, de- <laughs> the murder <laughs> come on <laughs> the murder okay quick disclaimer as ever just to say we don't mean any offence to anyone referenced in this episode. Uh, absolutely will not known whatsoever. And sources used, we had a few sources. So I used Murderpedia, uh, our old friend. Do you love a bit of Murderpedia? I also used some kind of different ones as well. And so the georgiencyclopedia.org, which was the first, Atlanta magazine I also used uh, the Jewish Virtual Library and then there was a very good site as well which I just want to name which is uh, it was called the Georgia Info site and that was very good as well so they're the reference they're the reference points for this okay so getting straight into okay on April 26, 1913, Mary Fagan, who was 13 at the time, she was a child of tenant farmers who had moved to Atlanta for work, went to the pencil factory to collect her week's wages. So, 
I, just, I know. I've never heard anybody say the pencil factory. Like it's just. I know. Well, you think about it, they have to be made somewhere. Like I was <laughs> like, oh yeah, like pe- pencils don't just happen. Yeah, no, they like don't. they have to be made. They have to be made in a pencil factory. That makes so much sense now. But it's it, it. There's a lot to unpack in that sentence. So. First of all, Mary was 13 years of age. She was living in Atlanta, so she'd moved there from from rural Georgia with her family, so her mother, her siblings, and her stepfather. And essentially what was happening at the time, because, of course, we probably wouldn't know much about what was happening in the southern states at Mm. at this time in history. So basically there was kind of a bit of a change. So Georgia had traditionally been very agriculturally kind of driven, a lot of farming, a lot of kind of work in rural areas. And at this time, Atlanta was becoming this huge industrial hub. So people were leaving like their small farms and the rural areas and they were moving into Atlanta and essentially like, you know, looking for a better life. They were working from a very young age. So poor Mary, of course, is 13. She's working in a pencil factory. I mean, come on. It's nobody's dream, is it? No, it's a bit grim. It's a bit grim for poor Mary. So poor Mary, and she was, she was, you know, obviously it goes out saying because she was a girl and she was of a certain age, it was just expected that you went and you worked in like these type of factories. But child labor actually was a bit of an issue at the time. And a lot of people were starting to look at it like, okay, this isn't actually right that all these kids are working and they're not in schools. There was a bit of a shift happening. Okay. And and what was her family situation like? Were they very poor? Obviously, yes. Yeah, like, I mean, they, well, they were working class. So mm. like, they, you know, they all worked and Mary and that was one of the things actually, because I did read somewhere an interview with like her great, great um, grand niece or even great, great, great grand niece. And she was talking about the fact that like, you know, the it was the usual setup that, uh, you know, even even though you're working, like as a child, you're obviously handing over your wages to your parents as mm-hmm. well. So it wasn't like she was, you know, rocking up to the sweet shop with her with yeah. her wages every week. It was very much that she had to contribute. And they, they lived in like, I suppose you'd call them the equivalent of tenements. Oh, um, okay. So there was a lot of these. Yes, there was a lot of these kind of springing up in Atlanta. Mm. So they were they're very much a working class, your typical working class family in Georgia at the time. So Mary, in, Marianne intended to pick up her paycheck and then join her neighbours for a big party because it was Confederate Memorial Day. At about noon, Mary entered the factory and went to plant manager Leo Frank's office to collect her wages. Leo Frank, the superintendent of the factory, paid her. He was the last person to acknowledge having seen Fagan alive. Okay. So she's. So. Something's happened during the pencil factory. Well, something pretty bad happened in the pencil factory. So let me tell you a little about Leo Frank. So Leo Frank was born to a Jewish American family in Texas. He then was raised in New York before moving to Atlanta in 1908. He got married in 1910. And he was very active in the local Jewish community in Atlanta. So the atmosphere in Atlanta at the time was a little bit, I guess, you know, it was tense. It definitely had some anti-Semitic overtones as well, because generally the Jewish community in Atlanta, a lot of them would have been business owners. 
And locals in Georgia were becoming increasingly resentful of what they felt were kind of Yankees, so like northern staters coming down to exploit a declining agricultural economy. So it was definitely kind of, it, it, it wasn't a great time to be Jewish and living in Atlanta necessarily because people were starting to get a little bit uneasy with, um, you know, the, mm. for example, like say the, the likes of Leo Frank obviously ran this factory, but there were many more, say, guys who weren't even necessarily Jewish, but that they come down from the northern states and locals maybe felt a little bit exploited. There was definitely an element of unrest happening there. Yeah. So there were also... Yeah. And like there, I mean, you know, obviously the Jewish community, they're all like so often in history, there is, there's just always that undercurrent of anti-Semitism as well. So the fact that he was coming down from New York, so he would have been perceived as a Yankee and Jewish, like he was kind of doubly, maybe not liked in the wider community for those two reasons. So, um, and and as well, of course, the whole child labour thing. So a lot of people were kind of expressing concerns at the amount of child labour happening in the factories as well. So in the middle of that night of April 26th, at about 3am, the factory watchman, he was like kind of the factory, I suppose, security guard as such, found Marianne Fagan's bruised and bloodied body in the cellar and called the police. So this is like the middle of the night, he makes this really grim discovery. It was so dark down there that he actually initially thought that this had been a little black girl who had been murdered. Okay. And then when the police were called, they discovered that it was it was Marianne Fagan. So the city was horrified that the young girl had been, so a bit of a trigger warning here, so the, the young girl had been raped and savage, savagely beaten before her death. So it was a really, really violent oh, no. crime. Yeah, it was awful. So the public demanded quick action and swift justice. Um, So they were just not, obviously, they were just up in arms at this crime. So the crime scene. Now, the crime scene itself, Sophie, had a few anomalies. There was a couple of strange elements to the crime scene. So near the body in the basement had been found two notes, one written on brown paper and the other on a leaf of like kind of, I guess, like a white notepad. So the one written on white paper in barely legible writing showed the follow read the read the following. He said he would love me, lay down, play like the night witch did it, but that long tall black negro did boy him himself. Ah, the the classic trying to pin it on uh, on some black guy. That is well. This is it. It's a it's a very strange note, isn't it? So just just to read that again, he said he would love me, lay down, play like the night witch did it, but that t- long tall black negro did boy himself. Very I must strange. Say, the bang of nineteen thirteen of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Do you know what? It's we, not a tweet. It's not a tweet. It's not very concise. And we we don't talk like that anymore, do we? I mean, it also sounds like, like I don't know, a Neil Young lyric or something. It's, it's <laughs> it is. It's, but you know what? It's quite the riddle. Like, it's very, just a very strange mm. statement. It's kind of hard to make sense of it. You need to and there was down. another notion. And kind of really decipher yeah. it, like looking at the words. Because like when you hear it said... 
it just sounds a bit like gobbledygook a bit, to be honest. It is, it is gobbledygook, isn't it? And it is like something they would sit down and analyze in the likes of Mindhunter. Yeah. Um, it just, it's a, it's a strange one. And then the other one, again, was equally strange. The other note written on the brown paper, ma'am, that Negro fire down here did this. I went to make water and he pushed me down a hole, a long, tall Negro black did it, I write, while play with me. Ugh. So again, oh, that's just a horrible a, a very, very strange. Yeah. But, but again, I mean, it, it was, it's just, it's, it's bizarre. It, it's, it's a funny one in that, like, it's kind of hard to determine, you know, like it's, it's obviously being written from Marianne's point of view. But, but she didn't write the it. language. Well, this is it. Like the language is, the language just wouldn't necessarily suggest that it is being written from Marianne's point of view because it's quite, it's almost surreal, isn't it? It's very abstract and disjointed. It's, it's like, um, I don't know, like, like a weird book or something like, like the way. It's um, like something out of a film, isn't it? Yeah. And the, uh, like make water and all that. Like, oh, I feel like, I don't know. There's just, I feel like Mary maybe wouldn't talk like that, you know, as a young girl. No. And and also, well, as it, as a young girl, it doesn't seem to necessarily kind of fit her demographic. I mean, not that I would know much about, you know, the 1913 teen girl demographic in Atlanta. But it doesn't seem like something that a 13-year-old girl would write. And also, what would propel her to write these if she's in this awful situation? Like, like, she's not going to be like, and then I went for a wee, and then I turned around, and there he was, and it was like, like, she would just, surely, if you're dying and you've just been raped and you want to say who it is, you just write write a name or a brief You know, like it yeah. was, but like yeah. you certainly don't have the wherewithal. I'm imagining to do a like little backstory as well. Yeah, because it is. That's a really good point, Sophie. Because it is so cryptic. It's like a riddle. So why would you do that in that moment? You would just be crystal clear and be like, "This is the person who did yeah. it." Um, I mean, my reading of that when I initially read that bit was. Okay, I'm thinking somebody is trying to pin this on an innocent black man. Was That's what I was thinking. Thinking too, Julie. Yeah, that that would have been my reading of it. But anyway, so in terms of eyewitness accounts, so both eyewitness accounts. So because I, eyewitness accounts placed both Frank Leo Frank, so essentially the boss at the factory and Marianne at the factory prior to her death. Obviously, police went to Frank's home very early on April 27th for questioning. So the Sunday morning, they rocked up and he was the first person to be questioned. So Frank denied knowing Fagan by name, which in and of itself so is very suspicious. He, given he, that he had yeah. So she's working as factory. Now, you know, there was a considerable staff working there. It wasn't a very small factory, but it wasn't a huge factory. Yeah. And also, like, he had only met Marianne that afternoon, so the afternoon before, and paid her her wages. So obviously, he did know who she was, but he instantly said, oh, I'm not quite sure. Like, I, you know, I'd have to see a picture. I'm not quite sure. I know 
that name, the name's familiar, but I can't think first. So the police found that a little bit strange. And also they did make a comment that they found him very, very nervous. Now, Uh, I mean, you would say the police rocking up to your house very early on a Sunday morning and this girl has just been, you know, sexually assaulted and beaten and killed. I think a lot of people would be nervous, but the police did comment on the fact that he was very, very nervous. Yeah, he was shifty shifty is a good word yeah exactly so frank wasn't arrested until 29th of april so a couple of days later the evening of marianne's funeral when public outrage regarding her murder reached a fever pitch so under pressure to solve the case detectives went back looked over the information they already had and a young worker so this is kind of what gave it a push I suppose kind of got it over the line for them a young worker there who was also a teenager said she did not see Frank when she came in shortly after Marianne to receive her pay despite Frank saying he had stayed at the factory for at least 20 minutes after Fagan left there we go gotcha Frank so well, it's it's an anomaly. It's something, you know, it's definitely a question to be answered. But the, the night watchman said Frank called the factory. So there was that. And there was also this in terms of arresting him. They were like, okay, that's another thing that really doesn't look good for him. Sorry. The night watch. Frank called yes. the factory on a, on a telephone. Well, this is it. So the night watchman said that Frank had called the factory later in the day on April 26th to see if everything was all right, which he had never, ever done before. Right. On the, on the basis of this evidence, Leo Frank was arrested. Yeah, I'm I'm pro this decision for Leo. Well, let me tell you. So prior to Frank's arrest, four men had been arrested in conjunction with Fagan's murder. So basically over the course of three days, they were arresting people left, right and centre. This guy called Arthur Mullinax, he was a streetcar conductor. And she, he had been seen talking to Marianne the night before she died. Sorry. And yes. Sorry to interrupt you. A streetcar conductor. What would that be? Well, you know, like the, you know, like the trams and stuff that you see in Lisbon. Yes, that would be a streetcar. What did a tram? I, I, yeah, I think that was basically like the streetcar, and then the conductor. So he would have been doing the tickets and stuff. Okay, and he. He had been seen chatting to, like, obviously he's a grown man. He had been seen chatting to Marianne, who, let's just remember, is like 13 years of age. So people kind of thought that was a little bit conspicuous. Okay. So they arrested him, but then released him. So they were like, no, like, it's definitely not him. Released him. Then they also arrested Newt Lee, who was the night watch, the black night watchman who discovered Marianne's body. So he was the one who alerted police. So they also arrested him, but then released him. And then John Gant, who was the former bookkeeper at the factory, was also arrested. And Gordon Bailey, who operated the elevator, the lift at the factory, had also been arrested as well and questioned. So on May 1st, which is, you know, like a few days later, Jim Conley, he was a black caretaker. He was the black janitor at the pencil factory. Mm -hmm. He was arrested after he was found rinsing what appeared to be bloodstains out of a shirt. Over the course. Yes. So it was his shirt and he was seen to be washing this, this shirt and people 
an eyewitness basically contacted police because it looked like blood. So the police were notified. They brought him down. And over the course of questioning, when presented with the two notes, these two bizarre notes that have been found at the crime scene, uh, Conley said that he couldn't write initially. He said he was illiterate. But then this this was later found to be untrue. So it turned out that he could write, but he told right. police that he couldn't. But then why so did again, he why didn't say it was like basically himself? Why did he say this is this is a black guy, isn't it? Yes. So why would he be like, oh, the black guy did it? Uh, like, well, yeah, it's it's. It, I thought the exact same thing. He's ratting himself out, like. In a way. Well, yeah, it's 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 a strange one because you'd wonder if he's written it. What? Exactly that. Why would he point it, kind of, I suppose, direct police to a black man? Like you would imagine that he would go the other route and direct police to a white man or the boss or whoever, you know, whoever it was. But yeah, it was it was strange. I mean, as well, I suppose you have to factor in. You know, I imagine being a black man in 1913, you really don't want to be in a cop station in Atlanta. So you can see why people would lie if they were scared, etc. as well. Yeah. But at the same at the same time, it was it was proved that he he did he, that he did lie. And then also a handwriting expert did say that it could have been Conley who had written these notes, like which you know wasn't conclusive, of course, but that he could potentially have written these notes. Um, so basically, now, I never really believed that a handwriting expert was a thing. Well, the, yeah, do you know, you know what? Like, actually, when they're like, yeah. the handwriting experts coming in, you better say who did it, and you'd be like, well, it's not like there's not really a hand. There is an actual handwriting expert. I'm, and young and ten year old Sophie saying I don't believe in the science of handwriting experts. <laughs> well, I just, I, I mean, I just don't believe that my school but, would have employed a handwriting expert <laughs> to look at the toilets and say, oh, that was like Sinead or whatever, you know. But like in this case, yeah. Obviously. I mean, maybe, maybe in the likes of Saint Andrews or one of those private colleges, you know, it could fly that you've employed a handwriting expert. But I think. For most of us, oh, Julie, it wasn't really a runner. They probably have a resident in-house handwriting expert in there. Uh, <laughs> I would say they probably do. But and this is when St. Andrews switches off. Fine, fine. <laughs> but they have since. You see, this is the thing that like in so many instances and especially so many cases of um, there's there's that wonderful um, series on Netflix where they follow the Innocence Project and they, you know, talk to you know, innocent people, etc. And so often this reliance on handwriting is just so hit and miss. Oh, Julia, I haven't it's seen not, that. Is it very good? Oh, it's really, it's really good. I'll, I'll get, I'll get the name, the Innocence okay. Files, it's called. Okay, perfect. Really, really good. Yeah. Thank but you. good, but depressing. I like a bit of that though. Yeah, we love, the sh- that's why we're doing Crime Man, Sophie. <laughs> I know. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Everyone's like, Gee, is it a comedy podcast? I'm like, no. Not really. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so Conley then, basically, what was interesting was, was that he wasn't charged and he became the state's main witness against Frank. 
So he then became the police's star person for the trial. So when the trial happened, now at this stage, he had actually given four different versions of events to the police. But again, if we're, you know, if we're kind of just sitting on the fence with this, you need to remind yourself that obviously the police as well, there'd be a lot of coaching. They obviously want Connolly to say something very specific. So that might be part of the reason why his stories kept changing as well. So once, I'm sorry, I've got confused with the names again. Connolly was the night watchman. Am I right? So Connolly, so Connolly was like the caretaker guy. Oh, the caretaker. So yeah. And he was, so he was the guy that was found washing the blood out of his shirt and then lied about the notes and then admitted, oh, I actually can write. And they then used him as the star witness against Con- against Frank. So Frank was put on trial for this murder and Conley came along and he was, he, it was essentially his testimony on the stand um, that was pivotal to this case. So basically Conley said, who of course was like the caretaker, the janitor in the pencil factory, yeah. he said, that he had been asked by Frank to come to the factory on Saturday and watch for him as he had previously done, which he explained meant that Frank expected to meet some woman. And when Frank stamped his foot, Connolly was to lock the door leading into the factory. And when he whistled, he was to open it. So Connolly claimed that Frank had this system that when he, you know, had dalliances, etc., with women <laughs> in the factory, in the office, that they had this code that basically Conley would make sure nobody came in and then he would whistle, which was the cue to Conley to essentially like open the door and people could come in again. Um, so Conley said that he had so foot, been kind of standing by the foot. lift behind some boxes. I mean, it's it's a funny one, isn't mm-hmm. it? A foot stamp. It's 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 it a bit, so I kind of petulant. I mean, it's a foot stamp. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? I don't know. But anyway, so he said, uh, Conley uh, said that he. Go Jamie, on. It was nineteen thirteen. It was nineteen thirteen. Maybe everyone was stamping. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, maybe it was a thing. Maybe it was a thing, to be honest. So, uh, Con- so Conley said, anyway, he'd been standing by the lift and he was behind some boxes because he wanted to be, that the whole idea was that he was kind of in- inconspicuous while really Frank was meeting them. these women. Lovely manners. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Again, I just feel like, was that necessary? But this is what he said happened. Okay. Uh, Conley then mentioned several people, including male and female female employees, who had gone up to where Frank's office was located. He said that Mary Fagan went up the stairs. He then said he heard a scream. And this is where I think it gets strange. So basically he said that he heard a scream and then he fell asleep. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Like, like, like a like scream brings on narcolepsy. I think it would be more the other way round, Connolly. I think you'd be more awake after hearing a scream. To me, now that just doesn't add up. That you would hear a scream and you then fall asleep. He it said seems, he dozed off. It seems like a big old lie. Also, like you're at work, you're not meant to be dozing off. Well, I mean, we've all done that. I, w- I won't judge the man for that, but... <laughs> Full asleep, though. But... Properly... After... Zedding, like... Well... 
just gone off to the loo for an hour nap. I think we've all done that one, haven't we, at work at some stage? I've just left to go to the shops for a few hours. Get a oh, bit of coffee. yeah. That's, you see that? Yeah, that's, 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 that's also a good move. Top move. But this is why we're such career women, Sophie. Oh, that's it. We're like Melanie Griffith and working girl, the two of us. Oh, so God, Weaver, I love that film. It's well, the best. Well, I thought it was Melanie Griffith in Working Girl. Gourney's the bitch that she takes her job from. Yes. Yeah. yeah, she is the bitch. You're right. I loved that. And isn't she, is she from Long Island or Staten Island in that Staten film? Island. She the ferry. She talks Staten like that. Island. Yeah. And the boyfriend's a dick and he can't put up with the fact that she's ambitious. Yeah, oh, it's a great movie. the worst. But then who's, who's the guy? Oh. Is it Liam Neeson? Yes. Oh, you're really testing me. Don't tell me Liam Neeson is the love interest in that film. He is. He is. And I just don't find him very sexy. Well, I think none of us find him very sexy after recent statements. But um, I'm just going to look him up here. I totally believe you, but I just want a visual. Liam Neeson, working girl. Yeah, it is him. Is he? I don't think it is him. What? What? I know, sure? working girl. Okay, who? Well, there's Harrison Ford. Are you on IMDb? Is Harrison Ford the one you're thinking? It of? is Harrison Ford. I'm on. Hang yes. on. Yes. Yeah, hang on. Yes. Yeah. And like, I knew that it was Harrison confused. Ford. I he's just sometimes get those names mixed up. Okay. It's Kalista Flockhart, Harrison Ford. Okay. Listen. It ha- it happened it happens to the best of us. Good old Harrison. So he was in it and I forget he was the snake boyfriend. I wonder was he somebody that we knew? He was a real uh, grease ball. I'm just gonna look that up. He was a real grease ball. And then do you remember oh and she caught him riding your one? Oh my god, it was so devastating. He wasn't even sorry. He just kept going. It was all- well actually no, he was a little bit sorry, but not really. Not really. It was, um, I remember being so shocked by the nudity in that, by the way. I was like, oh my God, we're seeing it. Alec Baldwin. <gasps> He's a ride as well. Alec Baldwin. I know, do you know when I used to really fancy Alec Baldwin, but then I went off him with the pig voicemail. Do you remember that one? When he called he his daughter a little pig. Oh, that was horrible. Oh, really bad. And do you know he has like a million kids with the second family? But he just had an absolute mad old time where he was a bastard to everybody who came into yeah. like his he, he, life. And then everyone was like, oh no, look, he's been on 30 Rock, we like him again. And I, I found myself quite liking him again. Quite bad. Well, do you know what? I think there is, Alec does have a bit of likability and he owes so much to Tina Fey for 30 Rock because that really oh, brought him back. It really did. He's so good in that show. Uh, yeah, and uh, we P.S. All hail Tina Fey. She's the absolute queen. So, um, so yeah, we digress there. So basically, Conley, <laughs> what's new? So Conley, anyway, said that he dozed off, and we're saying no. That's just there's something a bit fishy about that. But then he said that in a few minutes, Frank had stamped his foot, and then Conley locked the door. 
And then Frank whistled, at which time Conley unlocked the door and went up the steps. According to Conley, Frank was shivering and trembling and told him, I wanted to be with the little girl and she refused me and I struck her and I guess I struck her too hard and she fell and hit her head against something and I do not know how bad she got hurt. Of course, you know, I ain't built like other men. And then... In, so about a hundred feet away, so there was this kind of they called it the metal room, which was, was behind her uh, behind his office. Mm-hmm. Conley claimed to see Marianne's lifeless body. He also claimed explosively uh, that a little bit long winded. Yeah. What do you think? Do think? I think I think he's, he's getting a bit long winded with his. Oh, look at my little body. Oh, I didn't know that I'd that I'd hurt her that much. Oh, and like I wanted to get with a little girl, like wrap it up like make it make it smaller like he's making things difficult for himself here I think I think to be fair yeah that's a really good point because I think Conley saying that this is what he said it's quite a you know okay maybe he's paraphrasing but it's quite a long long statement very long you know is it believable that in that moment Frank would? But then maybe it is, and that maybe if he was in shock, he was just kind of he was a bit of a blabbermouth. Just like, kind of like he might have just been gibbering on, mm. yeah. So he might have been just gibbering on. But Conley also claimed, which was like hugely explosive at the trial, that Frank had forced him to move the body. So that he had ordered him to move the body down to the cellar. And then, which was like the real now silver silver bullet in this one, he said that Frank had offered him money to write these two mysterious notes, which Frank had dictated. So Frank had dictated the notes and he insisted that Conley wrote these notes in his handwriting, obviously, so that it wouldn't be his own. And that was what he claimed. Why would he bother? How do you bother with the notes? Yeah, it's like, well, the notes are very, very odd, aren't they? They're really odd. And I think that like for uh, a man with a bit of power like this guy, a bit of money, he could have got somebody to come and take that body and pop it up into the hills or down into the ground or, you know, behind a bush far away. Like, I don't know why he decided that the note writing was the way forward. It makes no sense. Yeah, it's well, I mean, I guess what like maybe his thought was this is going to pin it on Connolly because Connolly is a black man. And what I've actually done there is what he's doing is actually I've changed my mind is actually a lot more simple than my palaver (laughs) that I was suggesting about going up to the mountains of the body. No, but it's it's kind of, you know, it is a bit. It's look. It's a bit. It's a bit convoluted and it's a bit long winded. But I mean, maybe maybe he is trying to throw the police off the scent and like push them in the direction of the likes of Conley or say there there have been the night watchman who find the body newtly. Um, you know, putting. I, I suppose. I mean, I would imagine he was trying to plant the seed that it was a black man who did this. Seems that way. If if it is him, that's the thing, Julie. If it is, well, this him. is the thing. So Atlantans, which so basically the city of Atlanta was really, really, really following this trial. Like there was a media frenzy at the time. They really, really hoped for a conviction. So at the time, Leo Frank was 
vilified. Right. People really did not like him. Um, one of the things which had, uh, I guess, kind of come out during the trial as well was um, the fact that uh, a couple of witnesses did say that that uh, Frank had been known for having kind of dalliances with girls who worked at the factory, but also there were rumours that he'd also had some kind of relations with boys who worked at the factory. So people was, kind of, he was, he was kind of recognised as... Was he a pedo? Being, like, a pedophile? Well, well, like, I mean, I I don't know what I necessarily say pedophile because these were things that were said at the trial, but not necessarily proven. So these these were just things that were said by a couple of witnesses. And one friend of Mary Mary's had actually said that Mary had expressed to her, which is probably the most credible, yeah. you know, the most cred- credible aspect to this, that Mary said that she felt uncomfortable around Frank because she felt that he flirted with her. So that is something that I think would carry a bit of weight because this was her little friend saying, oh, yeah, like she did say to me that he did kind of creep her out a little bit. Um, and, but again, well, this is it. So, again, the media really focused on that aspect, you know, that that the friend had said. Now, Mary and like the friend had never, you know, she said that nothing had happened, but that she just kind of got the creeps off him. Was she got she a vibe. She got a bad point. vibe. She got she got a bad vibe. So the, then the couple of witnesses had said, you know, something to that effect as well at, at the trial. So people were very quick to latch onto that and say this guy is a pervert, and you know he needs to be he needs to be found guilty and he needs to be sentenced to death. So every day outside the courthouse were mobs of people paying for blood. And there were mass celebrations when Frank was found guilty of Marianne Fagan's murder and sentenced to death. So wow. Frank's lawyers, obviously, they filed appeals straight away. All the files were denied. They tried five times to appeal the case and every single time they were denied. Oh, God. And he's got so one all- on his side and everything. Yeah, like he's a he's a rich business guy, and he's being he's being told no, like left, right, and centre. Now there was definitely, you know, even with like kind of you know the media coverage at the time and these kind of baying crowds outside the courthouse. Again, there was definitely an element of kind of anti-Semitism there as well. Like the fact that Frank was Jewish, there seemed to be kind of an extra layer of contempt there. Oh, okay. Um. So, you know, that that's something that would have maybe worked against him as well in terms yeah. of appeal. But when all the appeals have been exhausted, Frank's attorneys sought a commutation from the George governor, who was a guy called John Slayton. So Slayton reviewed all the documents, 10,000 pages related to the case. He visited the pencil factory where the merger took place and he decided that Frank was actually innocent. So this is like the top politician in Georgia at the time. And he was like, I've looked at the facts and I think this guy didn't do it. He commuted the sentence, however, to life imprisonment because he said, you know what, I'm not going to release him. But I, I think he is innocent, so we'll say we won't kill him, but I think he will establish his innocence at some point. So I'll just give him a bit of time here. Okay. So this led to actual this led to actual riots in Atlanta. So people were fuming when they heard the governor had uh, essentially commuted the sentence. So they, they had to actually call in martial law. They declared martial law and brought in the National Guard. So when Slayton's term as governor, and yeah, it was crazy. People were enraged. 
So when Slayton's term as governor ended a few days later, police escorted him to the train station where he and his wife boarded a train and left Georgia and they were not to return for a decade. So they were essentially hunted out. Like this is how... Uh, this is how passionately people felt about this case. Like it really was, it was, it was a very powerful moment in Georgia history because this guy like was essentially ran out of town just because he said, I think this guy might be innocent. And everyone was like, no, absolutely not. So after Slayton's commutation, they obviously, they obviously didn't have that much going on at the time. Like for them (laughs) to be getting this head up, like, do you know this is nuts? Yeah, they it was it was it was insane. And again, like it really does come back to like there is definitely a discrimination element yeah. here. Like yeah, there, it is definitely you know it's not yeah, adding up because it, I'm sure it, at the time there were plenty of other crimes similar in the nature with this kind yeah. of like you know industrial kind of vibe going on. You know, come on. Yeah. And it like that this is the thing that like again it was I mean it was essentially it was essentially because he was Jewish really. That's mm. why people were so up in arms. I mean, looking back on it now like there's no question but this was just an- anti-semitism yeah. like in terms of the public response. Not taken from the fact that this is a horrendous crime, like absolutely horrendous. But as you say, Sophie, you know, like I think what really kind of got people was the fact that he he was a member of the Jewish community. Um, so after the commutation, Frank was held at a prison in Milledgeville for just under two months. So he was there in prison for two months. During his time in prison, a fellow prisoner slashed his throat with a knife, but Jesus. he actually survived. I mean, yeah. I think that'd be so tough it, enough to survive that in nineteen. Everything I think of, I'm like in nineteen thirteen, like without <laughs> without like modern medicine and bloody penicillin. Yeah. The poor guy. I mean, sorry, this, not poor yeah. guy. So he. But, I mean, imagine like having your throat slashed. Ugh, like, but he did survive. But on the night of August sixteenth, nineteen fifteen. So at this stage now, like we're a couple of years down the line. Um, uh, this, now this is like unbelievable that they actually, that these people got away with this. But on this night, August 16th, 1915, 25 prominent citizens. So these local guys, um, they were from a town called Marietta, which, well, and the Marietta and the surrounding area. So Marietta would have been, uh, would have been the hometown of Marianne Fagan. Do you know what? She's 25. Yes. It sounds like a biscuit, doesn't it? I think it is, I think it is a biscuit. Okay. It? I I, we could not possibly we could not possibly ascertain whether or not I presume Mariettas don't come from there, do they? Well it just sounds like Vianetta and another thing, which sounds more bit it's just a well, biscuit. There is, there is, yeah. There is a Marietta biscuit and we were discussing before we press record, we were discussing granny biscuits. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say a Marietta is just a straight up granny biscuit, isn't it? It is. Absolutely. It comes in the big boxes with the one biscuit with the red jelly on it at Christmas time. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 straight up granny biscuit. And yeah. this was, so this is was Mary Ann's hometown. So these 25 guys basically armed themselves. They stormed the prison where Leo Frank was being held 
And they took Frank from his cell, drove him back to Marietta, which as we've determined was Marianne's hometown, where they wait for it. So they essentially lynched him. They hung him from a tree. Yeah, they hung him from a tree in the middle of town. Christ. Okay, so making a real spectacle out of Leo. Real spectacle. And then the next morning, there was a crowd of 3,000 people that came down to actually look at the body hanging in the middle of the middle of the town. It was just insane. And then was these he like, guys... Sorry, no. was he nude and all? Did they get to take his clothes off? Um, yeah, well, he, he, yeah, like he was, he was lynched. So he was beaten, stripped and then hung from a tree. Sorry, I didn't know the full meaning of lynch there, but now I have it. Oh yeah, but I mean it's 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 just horrific, like isn't it? I mean, it's horrendous. Coming up to the anniversary as well soon, Julie. We'll have to you know mark it in some way. Sixteen. Oh, this is true. Just just next week. Oh, and you know as well, another another interesting fact about these guys. So these guys would then only a few months later they then went off and they established. Just a little thing. Don't know if you've heard of them. They established an organization called, wait for it, the Ku Klux Klan. <gasps> oh, I was yeah. not expecting it to be that. Whoa. Yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, again, yeah. just reminding ourselves. Not good, guys. Uh, like, this is uh, not good, guys. And again, in terms of their motivations, I mean, the fact that this was a Jewish man who had been found guilty of this crime, that was what was motivating them. And then they established a couple of months later the Ku Klux Klan. So, yeah, bit mad. So obviously Frank's death had a huge impact. It really struck fear in Jewish Southerners. So obviously if you were Jewish and you were living in the South, you were a little bit scared because you realised... I guess you just realized the level of anti-Semitism that was kind of, you know, I guess it was it was an undercurrent maybe in a lot of southern states, certainly Georgia. And it also inspired the formation of the Anti-Defamation League, which apparently is one of America's, it's like this civil rights organization and it does a lot of important work. And it, you know, it does a lot of work specifically helping minorities and it really propelled the establishment of that organization because they were saying, look, we probably have to protect people from media coverage and stuff like that if they mm. are kind of involved in the criminal system. So that was a big thing. Now, here's the twist. Another twist. Jesus, go on. Another twist. In 19, it's getting twisty. So Ooh, in 19, in 19, what the. <laughs> this is the last twist. Okay. In 1982, an 83-year-old man called Alonzo Mann, who had been working at the factory as a young office boy in 1913, claimed, so he was dying, and on his deathbed he said that he had seen Wafers. Go on. Jim. Jim Connolly carrying Mary Fagan's body to the basement on the day of her death. Connolly had threatened to kill Man if he said anything, and the boy's mother advised him to keep silent and not to tell anyone, least of all the police. Connolly, you little shit. But I guess the only thing I'll say is is that he had said that Frank had told him to bring the body down to the basement area. That's true. So, you know, that would, is true. Would that fish? 
But he had he had just told he he did just tell the the other boy he made no reference of Leo Frank and he did on his deathbed say I have to say this so obviously his feeling as a young boy was that Jim Connolly had murdered this girl. Like that was his feeling. So he didn't specify, you know, whether or not Frank was in the factory, but he said, look, I have to say this because this is something that's been, you know, weighing on me. So his impression was that Jim Connolly had killed this girl. I love a deathbed confession. Oh, you can't beat it. It's a great way to end a story, isn't it? Great. Yeah, it's re- there's a lot of levity in it. It's very kind of keeps everyone kind of guessing. And then, it's, yeah, cliff cliffhanger, yeah. cliffhanger, because they might it's even a, they might even die before they get the whole confession out, which is even more. Well, like, yeah, infuriating. it is. It is a cliffhanger. Now, I mean, in saying that, like this guy now, you can see why, like his mother told him not to go to the police. And like, obviously, you know, the fact uh, uh, again, coming back to the fact that I imagine members of the black community did not have a good relationship with the police. It's just very interesting that this guy said, I need to tell you something. Mm. I saw this guy and he'd killed. He was very much, I imagine, trying to present the fact that Jim Conley had killed this girl. Yeah. Yeah. And and then as a result of that, and then again, just reviewing the evidence and the fact that, that there was essentially two subjects, Jim Connolly and Leo Frank, and one was used against the other as a key witness. So Jim Connolly became the witness. It's bizarre. Yeah, even though he should have been a suspect. So the Georgia State Board of Pardons and Paroles, they reviewed the case in 1986. Obviously, Frank was long dead and they actually pardoned him, largely due to this new testimony from from Alonzo Mann. So he, he has been pardoned many years after his death, but it still remains very controversial. So a lot of people would still kind of subscribe to the theory that he did do it. But many more, I would say the majority of people would say, no, like this is just a case of anti-Semitism and, you know, really a, a kind of, I suppose, a criminal justice system that was not, it, it was, you know, it was not necessarily based on equity and equality no. for, for all, etc. So it's very much looked at. It's still controversial and there are still some people who think that Frank did do it. But that deathbed confession has a lot of people thinking, well, there were only two suspects and this kid claimed to have seen one of them carrying a body. And ultimately, that's not the guy that was found guilty of this crime. So it's it's a really interesting one. And that is the death of Marianne Fagan. Wow. There's a, there is a lot. It's a good one. There's though, a lot it? to take in there, isn't there? Like... I'm Lots still reeling that the little OG Ku Klux Klan lads, that there was only 25 of them and they managed to just, you know, walk into a prison and just take someone out. Just be like, yeah, yeah we're having him. They must have been very intimidating. Well, I guess, you see, this is probably as well, like maybe a small rural prison. You know what? So I'd imagine jails, they probably outnumbered the staff. Jails probably weren't as good back in 1913. You know, they probably weren't as high I, security, etc., etc. Yeah. But um, I'd say not, and also, and also because Frank, you know, he wasn't a popular prisoner oh, by sure. any stretch of the imagination. So the prison guards yeah, were probably say, like, "Take him, take him." 
you know yeah here's here's a truncheon to stick up his arse while you're at it like (laughs) (laughs) they probably probably were though I mean but I found it quite creepy then to find out that most of these guys then went on a few months later to establish the Ku Klux Klan it just gives you the heebie-jeebies nuts yeah it is nuts and obviously you know to end it with just to say Marianne Fagan, so, so sad, like 13 years of age, horrendous death. You know, whoever did kill her, whether it was Leo Frank or Jim Conley, you know, I mean, it really was a horrific crime. She really got got lost in the whole thing, though, didn't she? Because people just became so obsessed with trying to pin it on your man. Oh, absolutely. And even the fact that up until the mid 80s, you know, people were still kind of deciding whether or not are trying to ascertain like who actually did this. Yeah. Um, and now at this point, I mean, I would think that the majority would probably kind of veer towards that Jim Conley did it. What do you but think? There would still be, well, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's very hard to know. I think what would trouble me about the Jim Conley bit would be the notes. Yeah. I know. I, you know, I don't, un- I don't understand why he would write those notes. And the those if, notes if, are if just he, so if he had killed Marianne. Yeah, why? Yeah, because as he as he said, Sophie, if he had killed Marianne, why would he write the notes? Which are you know, it's kind of veering towards, it's directing people towards a black man. But what I do think is, I do think that deathbed confession is probably the most credible bit of evidence at all of all. Yeah, it was and the that man, her and him yeah. together. Like in her body, yeah, dead. Yes. And, you know, if the fact as well, like with Jim Conley, there was the contradictory statements, etc. But I think that deathbed confession, you nearly have to go by that because that's the only eyewitness as such. Yeah, yeah. It's mad though, isn't it? Like what what do you think? What do I think? Oh, well, do you know what? I was thinking that it was Connolly. And, you know, it still might be. We don't know. But once I heard that Leo was a dirty little perv, you know. But, yeah, but you see, then it's, you know, the own again. Was he a dirty perv? Because, uh, I mean, the Because everyone hated him anyway. Just because he was a Jew, actually. That's a good point. Yeah, people did dislike him. But I would say... I would. I do think the that friend? Marianne did say to her friend. Yeah. yeah, I do believe that one hundred percent. That the friend did say, you know, that he was flirting with her. Or, you know, he kind of gave her the creeps that made her uncomfortable. I think absolutely that conversation did take place. Yeah, like do you know what? He might have been taking advantage of the young girls. We don't know, but at the same time, yeah, there there's something very shady about uh, the other lad, what, Connolly. Jim Conley, yeah. And I I do think, I think it just goes back to that confession that I think even though certain elements still don't add up for me, I think I would have to go with that testimony on the deathbed of your man saying, well, I like it was Jim Conley. I think and we have to do that. He might have even seen more than he cared to admit, Julie. Well, this is it. And I do think, you know, to be pardoned posthumously, they don't do that very often. They don't. So, yeah. So I think, you know, I think that I would veer towards 
that Leo Frank didn't do it. Um, but there yeah. are still some elements that don't quite add up for me. And Horrible. I don't understand the no thing, etc. Horrible death for your man, you know, if he was innocent. Like, how humiliating oh, and painful and, oh, just gross, really. Well, it just it just points to, again, the level of discrimination. And obviously, because, you know, we would all be au fait with the discrimination suffered by black and brown people living in the South during this time. But, I mean, also, obviously, you know, Jewish people. Because you wouldn't think it automatically, do you know? You, like it wouldn't come to no, mind when you hear of like the deep south and you know you wouldn't be like oh jewish people had it hard down there you know yeah it's it's interesting cause you see that's a, yeah it's 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 not something that you or i probably know much about because it's not something we would have studied in history but no it's a real eye-opener and it's just it's just very sad all around it is sad but i it was very interesting at the same time um I'm delighted you enjoyed it. So come here to me. It's always a pleasure. Never a chore. Thank you so much for chatting tonight, Mrs. I love coming on. Thanks for having me, Julie. We love you. Come here. I'll talk to you soon. We're doing our rebrand relaunch this week as well, guys. So get very, very excited. Social media. It will be happening. We're getting on board. Okay. Thanks so much, Sophie. You're the best. Chat to you soon, Mrs. Bye. Bye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.